This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, December 21st, 2018, episode 64, concerning the Bishop, Knight, and Rook. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. We've reached the penultimate episode in our Holiday Chess series, looking at William Caxton's The Game and Play of the Chess, printed around 1470 and based on a 13th century text by the Dominican monk Jacobus de Chasolis. Today, we're going to finish up the description of the moves or drafts of the remaining backrank pieces, the bishop, or in Caxton's terminology, the alphan, the knight, and the rook. In previous installments, we already talked a bit about how, while their movements largely stayed the same, the identities of these backrank pieces changed as the game of chess was transmitted from culture to culture. The knight or horseman remained stable, cavalry being a point of commonality among the militaries of all the cultures playing chess, but the Indian elephant and chariot did not transfer as well into other contexts. In the European game, they both became other figures of the court. The elephant, or Arabic alfin, A-L-F-I-N, exhibits the broadest variety, becoming variously the count, the fool, the judge, or the bishop. The rook is a vicar or herald in Jacobus and Caxton, but elsewhere was the margrave, or in some places, the siege tower, which is the iconography that has stuck. You can see the effects of this evolution in the design of the chess pieces. In the more elaborate representational pieces where you actually have sculptures of people, you find a variety corresponding to the various names of the pieces. But there's also a tradition of abstracted or iconographic chess piece designs, and these show the persistence of older traditions. This is one of those moments where I wish I were doing a YouTube series rather than a podcast because visuals would be very helpful in talking about chess piece designs. If your podcast player is capable of navigating chapters in this show, um, and don't feel bad if it isn't, there isn't an official standard for putting chapters into MP3 podcasts, so some places they work and some places they don't. Um, but anyway, for this episode, I'll drop in some chapter images uh, that those of you who aren't driving can look at. Otherwise, Google image search ancient chess pieces and you'll find plenty of examples. As I was saying, the abstract pieces preserve ancient traditions longer, although almost certainly without the knowledge of the medieval artisans making them. For example, the conventional bishop was a kind of round-topped cylinder with two little projecting points. These are the tusks of the elephant. The knight had one projection, representing the horse's head. And the rook had a divided top. It kind of looks like two waves breaking in opposite directions, which no doubt originally evoked the pair of horses pulling the chariot. You can trace a loose evolution, where you see the horse's head becoming more representational in the night, and the two points of the bishop kind of migrate up the head of the piece and ultimately become the lobes of the mitre. The rook as a tower first clearly appears in the middle of the 16th century, the older, bifurcated rook uh, in silhouette remains a heraldic element. In his A History of Chess, H.J.R. Murray doesn't hypothesize why the tower form emerged, but I would have to wonder if it isn't related to the fact that as the bishop's tusks move to the top of its head, you end up with two pieces that both have these kind of horn shapes or gestures caps on the top, 
uh, and I would imagine they could get hard to tell apart at a glance. And so the rook takes on a new shape to match one of its new names, the tower. As you move into the early modern period and on into the 18th century, you start to see very cylindrical pieces, often tall and skinny. A lot of them look like someone in shop class has just been practicing using a lathe, uh, and I'll confess they're not really my cup of tea. But they are a step toward the conventional abstract chessmen that we use today, which were designed by Howard Staunton in 1849, and which have become the standard iconography of chess internationally. And now, let's look at our text. The same vocabulary notes from last episode apply here, so if you've happened to drop into this episode without hearing the others in this little chess series, then I advise going back and starting at the beginning with episode 61, which will fill in all the context you need to understand Caxton here. I will just remind you that in the medieval rules that are at play in this text, the bishops moved differently than they do now. They could only move in a two-space diagonal jump. Uh, they don't get the full run of the diagonals, which is why they're described here primarily moving in little circuits around their side of the board. All right, and let's get to it. Here we go, continuing in book four of The Game and Play of the Chess. Fourth chapter of the fourth book of the issuing of the Alphen. The manner and nature of the draft of the Alphen is such that he that is black in his proper siege is set on the right side of the king, and he that is white is set on the left side, as been called and named black and white, but for no cause that they be so in substance of their proper color, but for the color of the places in which they've been set, and alway be they black or white when they've been set in their places. The Alphen on the right side, going out of his place to the right sideward, cometh to fore the laborer. And it is reason that the judge ought to defend and keep the laborers and possessions which been in his jurisdiction by all right and law. And also, he may go on the left side to the void space to fore the physician. For like as the physicians have the charge to heal the infirmities of a man, in likewise have the judges charge to appease all strifes and contentions, and reduce unto unity, and to punish and correct causes criminal, or criminal cases. The left Alphen hath also two ways from his own place, one toward the right side unto the black space void to for the merchant, for the merchants need oft times counsel and been in debate of questions which must needs be determined by the judges, and that other issue is unto the place to for the ribalds. And that is because that oft times among them fall noises, dissensions, theft, and manslaughter, wherefore they ought to be punished by the judges. And ye shall understand that the Alphen goeth alway cornerwise, from the third point to the third point, keeping alway his own siege. For if he be black, he goeth alway black, and if he be white, he goeth alway white. The issue or going cornerly or angularly signifieth cautily or craftiness, or subtlety, which judges ought to have. The three points betoken three things that the judge ought to attend. A judge ought to further rightful and true causes. Secondly, he ought to give true counsel. And thirdly, he ought to give and judge rightful sentences after the allegiances, and never to go from the right wise of the law. 
And it is to wit that the Alphen goeth in six draughts all the tablier round about, and that he cometh again into his own place. And, howbeit that all reason and good perfection should be in a king, yet ought it also specially be in them that been counselors of the king and the queen. And the king ought not to do anything doubteous or doubtful till he have asked counsel of his judges and of the sages of the realm. And therefore ought the judge to be perfectly wise and sage as well in science as in good manners. And that is signified when they move from three points into three. For the sixth number by which they go all the exchequer and bring them again into their proper place in such wise that the end of their moving is conjoined again to the beginning of the place from whence they departed. And therefore it is called a perfect moving. The fifth chapter of the fourth tractate, of the moving of the knights. After the issue of the Alphans, we shall devise to you the issue and moving of the knights. And we say that the knight on the right side is white and on the left side black. And the issue and moving of them both is in one manner, when so is that the knight on the right side is white, the left knight is black. The moving of them is such that the white may go into the space of the alphen as it appertaineth of the knight on the right side, that is white, and hath three issues from his proper place, one on his right side in the place tofore the laborer. And it is well reason that when the laborer and husbandman hath labored the fields, the knights ought to keep them to the intent that they have victuals for themselves and their horses. The second issue is that he may move him unto the black space tofore the notary or draper, for he is bounden to defend and keep them that make his vestments and covetors, or coverings, necessary unto his body. The third issue is that he may go on the left side into the place tofore the merchant, which is set tofore the king, the which is black. And the reason is, for as much as he ought and is holden to defend the king, as well as his own person, when he passeth the first draft, he may go four ways. And when he is in the midst of the tablier, he may go into eight places sundry, to which he may run. And in likewise may the left knight go, which is black, and goeth out of his place into the white. And in that manner goeth the knight fighting by his might, and groweth and multiplieth in his points. And oft times by them the field is won or lost. A knight's virtue and might is not known but by his fighting, and in his fighting he doth much harm, for as much as his might extendeth into so many points, they been in many perils in their fighting. And when they escape, they have the honor of the game. And thus is it of every man the more valiant and the more honored, and he that maketh himself humble oft times shineth clearest. The sixth chapter of the fourth tractate treateth of the issue of the rooks and of their progression. The moving and issue of the rooks, which been vicars of the king, is such, that the right rook is black and the left rook is white, and when the chess been set, as well the nobles as the common people first in their proper places, the rooks by their proper virtue have no way to issue but if it be made to them by the nobles or common people, for they been enclosed in their proper sieges. And the reason why is such, that forasmuch as they been vicars, lieutenants, or commissioners of the king, their authority is of none effect tofore they issue out, and that they have begun to enhance their office, for as long as they been within the palace of the king, 
so long may they not use nor execute their commission. But anon, as they issue, they may use their authority. And ye shall understand that their authority is great, for they represent the person of the king. And therefore, where the tablier is void, they may run all the tablier, and likewise as they go through the realm. And they may go as well white as black, as well on the right side as left, as forward and backward. And as far as they may run as they find the tablier void, whether it be of his adversaries as of his own fellowship. And when the rook is in the middle of the tablier, he may go which way he will into four right lines on every side. And it is to wit that he may in no wise go cornerwise, but always right forth, going and coming, as afore is said, wherefore all the subjects of the king, as well good as evil, ought to know by their moving that the authority of the vicars and commissioners ought to be very true, rightwise, and just. And ye shall understand that they been strong and virtuous in battle, for the two rooks only may vanquish a king, their adversary, and take him, and take from him his life and his realm. And this was done when Cyrus, king of Persia, and Darius, king of Medes, slew Balthazar and took his realm from him, which was nephew to Evelmeradoc, under whom this game was founded. So, with that, we've finished with the backrank pieces, with only the pawns left to go. But speaking of the common folk, we all, of course, know Wikipedia, our free user-edited encyclopedia, but are you familiar with Wikipedia talk pages? If not, you should be. They can be a source of hours of entertainment. To find them, you might have to be looking at Wikipedia in a web browser, as the mobile apps I've used don't always give you access to the talk or history pages for articles, uh, and both of those are worth exploring. You can find them in the tabs in the upper part of an article page in a desktop browser, or at the very bottom of the mobile browser version. The history page shows you all the changes that have been made to the article, which could be a fun thing to explore. The talk page is a kind of badly designed message board where the users editing the page can discuss issues related to the writing of the article. Do yourself a favor. Go to the article Rook parentheses Chess. Open its talk page. And now read any of the threads that have Castle in the heading, uh, which is most of them. For over a decade now, a fierce debate has been raging over how the article should address the fact that sometimes the rook is called a castle. About 15 years ago, this pair of sentences was in the Wikipedia article for rook. Quote, Rooks represent siege towers and get their name from elephant-mounted versions once used in India. They are usually made to look like little castles as a result and are called castles by some. End quote. Now, the first sentence is a highly contestable fact, uh, and that's a case of your old-fashioned criticism of Wikipedia as a perpetuator of lies and urban legends within otherwise factual articles. There is a grain of truth to it, uh, but it's a hypothesis that's all tangled up with the Bishop or Alfin being the original elephant piece. Uh, but really what I want to focus on is that second sentence, because someone decided that saying rooks are sometimes called castles was also an erroneous statement. 
a Wikipedia user with the name Revolver went in and edited this sentence to say, A rook is sometimes called a castle, although this term is rarely, if ever, used in modern chess literature and is generally considered incorrect. And then they posted this comment on the talk page. Among serious chess players, castle is not the correct term for the rook. To say otherwise is misleading, to say the least. We should not sacrifice accuracy at the cost of accommodating every possible usage. We want this to be an accurate article on the rook. The two rulebooks given are the standard arbiters for correctness. What am I missing here? Political correctness? Another user, Nuh-uh, responded, Any decent dictionary includes synonymous definitions of castle and rook. Serious chess players are not the only chess players, and the use of castle, while it may be deprecated amongst, quote, serious chess players, is not an error. To which Revolver replied, Any, quote, decent dictionary includes fallacious and incorrect definitions of mathematical terms and other specialized terms. General dictionaries are full of crap. Think what you want, whatever. I have to say, Revolver sounds like a real piece of work. Um, But though Revolver is now largely out of the saga, as one might say, the conflict is not over. It bubbles up a few times more, but then explodes in 2008 when a new user, Bubba73, has taken on the mantle of protector of the integrity of the Rook article. At this time, the language of the article is, quote, A Rook, sometimes referred to by inexperienced players as a castle, is a piece in the strategy board game of chess. A new thread is posted on the talk page by the user Neil Monks, who entitles it, Referred to by inexperienced players as a castle, snobbery surely, and writes, While this may or may not be the historically correct name for the piece, why then is the move castling so named? Surely the people who coined this name were experienced players. At the moment, the thing reads like snobbishness. Equivalent names in other languages are similar to castle, e.g. castel in Welsh, term in German, torre in Italian, and so on. Reflecting the accurate etymology is all very well, but the name castle for the piece would appear to be just as correct as rook, even if it isn't as ancient. Cheers. Bubba73 replies, Well, no knowledgeable person calls the piece a castle in English these days. Which is a response that kind of confirms the accusation of snobbery. But Bubba73 does make a concession and changes the description of the rook to, quote, Rooks usually are similar in appearance to small castles, and as a result, a rook is sometimes called a castle, usually by non-players and those new to the game. End quote. As you might guess, this change does not mollify Neil Monks, who responds, No, this doesn't really fix the issue. Lots of players call it the castle, just perhaps not the ones you play with. And the person who invented the castling move obviously called it a castle, or it would be called rooking or something. Thus, why say only non-players, and by implication from your comment here, the ignorant, call the thing a castle, when quite obviously lots of players call it that as well? Cheers. Bubba73 answers, This has nothing to do with the players I play with. The reference cited specifically says non-players, and that was the Oxford Companion to Chess, the most highly regarded encyclopedia of chess. If you want to dispute that, you need to come up with a good reference slash source. 
and the debate just runs from there, dying down only to spring back into life a couple of years later. It's a great little case study in the encyclopedic politics of Wikipedia. I've used this article as an assignment with my students uh, for understanding how Wikipedia works, because Bubba73 is right. His position is both correct and ridiculous, which is kind of the tragic irony of all pedantry. Bureaucrat Conrad, you are technically correct. The best kind of correct. I hereby promote you to grade 37. It doesn't matter how many users come into the talk page to say that they are experienced chess players and they call it a castle, and therefore the non-player statement is patently false, because that's ultimately just anecdotal experience. It's not a published source, and certainly not at a level that can compete with the authoritative word of the Oxford Companion to Chess. These users' experiences are inadmissible testimony, and so the mild snobbery of David Hooper and Kenneth Wilde, the authors of The Oxford Companion to Chess, stands as an encyclopedic fact until someone can find a reputable citation to challenge it. But then, who gets to decide which authority is more reputable? One user cites the concise Oxford English Dictionary, which calls castle an old-fashioned term for rook, which I still think is not an accurate statement, uh, but is offered as less incendiary than used by non-players. But Bubba73 retorts, The non-player's wording is from the Oxford Companion to Chess. I think chess masters know more about chess than lexicographers do. So, the seemingly rigorous principle that statements must be supported by citations of published authorities peels back a bit to reveal a whole lot of subjectivity and personal experience and preference running the show behind the curtain. Anyway, the wording of the article gets fiddled with throughout the decade. You'd think it'd be reasonable to just drop the modifier and say, it's also called a castle, since that statement would still technically be supported by the Oxford Companion, but there clearly are a number of users who deeply believe that this is wrong and that people should not be misled into thinking it's okay to call a rook a castle. And so some kind of vaguely pejorative label sticks in various forms. The current wording of the article? Quote, Rooks usually are similar in appearance to small castles, and as a result, a rook is sometimes called a castle. This usage was common in the past, but today it is rarely if ever used in chess literature or among players, except in the expression castling. End quote. So, that's actually probably about as neutral as you could hope for from this community of editors, and would be fine if another sentence hadn't been added up in the opening of the article, which is, quote, The term castle is considered informal, incorrect, or old-fashioned. End quote. And that gets marked with two footnotes that expound on books about chess that either do not use the word castle or that contain derogatory commentary about using castle. And you know what? I'm actually okay with that because it says considered incorrect, which is, if the talk page proves anything, definitely true for some people. My game recommendation this episode also relates to second-guessing people's motives and reasoning. This is a game I've already mentioned several times, Dead of Winter by Plaid Hat Games. It's a zombie survival game, and I roughly described its basic gameplay a couple of episodes ago when I was talking about different ways of employing the board in a board game. 
I used it as an example of a kind of worker placement game, um, but it's probably better described as a hybrid between worker placement and an adventure game, like Betrayal at House on the Hill. You and your fellow players play cooperatively, uh, at the start at least, as survivors living in a colony during a zombie apocalypse. Each game you pick a scenario to play, which gives you a different set of starting circumstances and victory conditions. Maybe you, as a collective group, have to collect a certain number of samples from zombies to synthesize a cure. Or maybe you have to hoard a certain amount of food and fuel. Maybe, in the simplest scenario, you just have to survive for a set number of turns. You work towards these goals by sending colonists out of the colony to locations around town, like a grocery store, a police station, or a school, and there they collect items while fending off zombies. The items you collect can be contributed to the main victory goal, or to a challenge that has been drawn for the current turn, like every player donating a unit of food, or else the whole colony suffers some dire penalty. Uh, and other little bits of colony maintenance have to be done each turn, like feeding the colonists and emptying the trash. And it's very easy for the colonists you control to get killed by zombies, and that hurts morale, and if morale drops too low, you lose. And while all this is going on, there's another level of play which is that each player has their own secret goal that they also have to achieve in order to be included among the winners at the end of the game if the colony's long-term objective has been completed. And there is a chance, though not a guarantee, that one of the players will have a betrayer objective that only succeeds if the colony fails. Unlike Betrayal at House on the Hill, this betrayer, if there is one, knows from the very beginning what they're up to. But if other players get suspicious, they can vote to exile any other player from the colony. So you have to be able to sabotage the colony without getting caught. But the wonderful thing is, everyone has to do some fishy stuff in this game. Which means anyone can become a suspect. Say the current challenge for the turn is donating medicine to the stockpile. You have medicine, but your secret goal requires you to be holding three medicine cards in your hand at the end of the game, and we're getting pretty close to the end. So everyone's saying, we need one more medicine in the stockpile, or else we fail this challenge and zombies are going to overrun the hospital and kill so-and-so's colonist who's there. And you look at your cards, and you rub your chin and say, well, gosh, that's terrible, but I don't have any medicine. And the colony loses that challenge, and a colonist dies, and morale goes down, but the colony as a whole still survives to the next turn, and you're still set for winning your secret goal. And you're not the betrayer, but someone might think you are if they find out, or just suspect that you had medicine in your hand the whole time. So the game generates this great layer of paranoia, which is just amplified by how vulnerable your colonists are. You get attached to your characters, and then they make a bad roll traveling from the school to the gas station, and boom, they're dead. Now, to tie this back into chess, uh, Dead of Winter is a complex game with a lot of rules and a lot of phases that have to happen each turn. I think it is very well designed to make all that stuff as clear as possible, but it's a daunting amount of information to take in as a new player. Nonetheless, it worked when I introduced it to my family. Like I said, we had a history with board games, but not this style of game. And yet my parents, in their early 60s, were able to pick it up in an evening and really enjoyed it. It was the first of what I've been calling 
game night board games that I brought home to play with them at Christmas three or four years ago, and it's remained a favorite over all that time. And that's what I'm going to conclude with. A couple of points of advice to anyone thinking of trying to get, uh, should we say, non-players, less experienced players, noobs, people who call rooks castles, Uh, well, whatever we call them, here's advice on how to get them into game night games. This past summer, I brought home the Cthulhu Mythos-based game Elder Sign Omens, which is in the family of the Arkham Horror games, though simpler in its mechanics. But I had mixed results with this game, uh, as far as my only moderately Lovecraft-aware parents getting into it. As Dead of Winter showed, they can handle complex rules, but I think they do struggle a bit to care about complex mythos and lore, which can get a bit heavy in Lovecraft games, or really any sci-fi or fantasy-themed games. That is one of the great strengths of Dead of Winter. It's a moderately complex game, but all you really have to know about the premise is zombie apocalypse. If you've seen any zombie movie from the last decade, or really from the last five decades ever since Night of the Living Dead, you can put yourself right into the game's world. So that's my first piece of advice when picking an introductory game. You'll have to spend a lot of time and mental energy at first just comprehending the rules, so go with games that have a simple premise or theme. If you also have to learn and explain the world of the game alongside the rules, that's a recipe for confusion and disengagement. It's pretty easy to discern and remember that you're more likely to draw medicine out of the deck of cards at the hospital than the one at the library. It's less easy to remember that you can find elemental weapons at the mana wells, but not in the crystal caves. Mysterium, which I recommended last episode, is also an example of this. Its mechanics are quite different from traditional games and will probably be strange and unfamiliar to your players, but what you're trying to accomplish is basically Clue. It's very easy to grasp. Uh, And that leads to my second suggestion, which might not be as universally true, but I'll put it out there for consideration. I think you should look for games that have a very clear and concrete victory goal such as the winner being the first person to reach a certain space, or being the last one with pieces or money left after eliminating everyone else, Monopoly style. Or a mystery is solved, or a specified amount of medicine has been contributed to the stockpile. My experience has been that games which just end after a certain number of turns, and then everyone tallies up their individual victory points, uh, doing about five minutes of math on their own scratch paper, and then comparing the totals to see who won. That's a very arbitrary kind of ending for a game, and an abstract kind of victory that I think you have to grow accultured to through gaming experience before you're likely to find it particularly satisfying. All right, and let me see if I can bring this episode to a satisfying ending. We have one final installment of our holiday chess series, uh, which will come before New Year's Eve, so keep your eyes on your feed. As always, find us, usual places, Twitter at MDT Podcast, email patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com, or at that website, more info, Patreon, get bonus content, and your support really does help me patreon.com slash mdt podcast and i think that covers it so whether you're one of those vulgar rubes who plays chess with castles or an urbane sophisticate who only uses rooks in either case all are welcome and thanks for listening